Welcome to episode two of Idiom America, or American Idiom, or I don't know, Idioms in America. Uh, and of course, there's no shortage of idioms in the English language outside of America, too. And there's also idioms borrowed from other languages, but uh, Idioms in America are what I grew up with, so that's the title I'm going with, I suppose. Um, uh, this morning, I heard a song by Josh Ritter that I really like. Uh, but let's be honest, there's not a song by Josh Ritter that I don't really like. Uh, but, but this song is called Snow is Gone, and it has a lyric that goes, I sang in exultation, pulled the stops, you always looked a little bored. But I'm singing for the love of it, have mercy on the man who sings to be adored. And that phrase, pulled the stops, uh, caught my ear. And I wanted to explore more to see where it came from. I figured it had something to do with music, uh, maybe just because of the context of the song, or maybe because my mom played our church's organ pretty well, and I might have heard her talk about stops on an organ, uh, because it turns out that this is indeed the origin of the phrase. And NPR had a nice piece on organ music back in 2006 called Organ Music, Pulling Out All the Stops. And that's the way I'd always heard the idiom too, pull out all the stops. Uh, but Josh gets a pass here from me for shortening that to pull the stops, even though I can't find too many other uses like that. So what, what is a stop? Uh, well, it's a component of a pipe organ that lets the pressurized air, uh, which is also known as wind, uh, lets that air into a set or a rank of organ pipes. And its name comes from the fact that an organist can use a stop selectively to stop the flow of air to particular pipes. Um, and as an aside that was sort of interesting to me, uh, a stop is also the name for the knob or whatever other device that controls the flow of air to the set of pipes in a particular stop. Uh, so a, a stop controls a stop. In other words, it can bring it online or take it offline by opening or, or closing that stop. Uh, so a stop is both a stop and the thing that controls the stop, which makes me think back to the first episode of this podcast, talking about tautological phrases like first and foremost, uh, which state the same idea twice using different words. And this seems kind of like the opposite of a tautological phrase in some ways. Uh, here, instead, we have the same word denoting different parts of the same thing. And I wonder what this is called. And the first thing that uh, came to my mind is uh, synecdoche, which is a figure of speech in which a part is made to represent a whole. So for some examples, boots on the ground, uh, referring to soldiers, even though boots are just a part of a soldier. Or new wheels, referring to a new car, even though the wheels are just a part of the car. I don't know, uh, this might qualify, but there's there's probably a better word for it. But anyway, pulling out all the stops, that means the air is going to all the pipes simultaneously. And the expression has come to mean to make a great effort to achieve something or to do something very elaborately or on a grand scale. And with the pipe organ, the scale can be very grand indeed. Uh, believe it or not, some pipe organs can have 12,000 pipes arranged in ranks of varying sizes. And the pipes can range in size from that of a pencil to pipes that are 64 feet long and two feet in diameter. And so as I read a bit more about pipe organs, I come to see why my mom was not happy when our church swapped out its old pipe organ for an electric organ. And for me, the preeminent pipe organ that comes to mind uh, is the one that's used by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir on Temple Square in Salt Lake City. 
and in its current version, that pipe organ has 206 ranks of pipes and 11,623 pipes. Uh, and of course, our little church's pipe organ couldn't compare to that one, but I'm sure it had more character to it uh, for an organist to play than than an electronic one did. And I, I, I still remember uh, climbing up into the attic uh, of our church where the pipes were located and, and feeling some kind of spooky magic up there. Uh, anyway, according to that NPR piece, it was none other than Mozart who first declared the organ the king of instruments. And NPR hypothesizes that this comes from the immensity and nobility of the organ sound and by the tremendous variety of sounds the instrument can produce. And one of the reasons it can produce uh, such a tremendous variety of sounds is that it's a hybrid. It's part wind instrument and part keyboard instrument. And so I can see how if you pull out all the stops and have 12,000 pipes of the king of instruments going all at once, that this would be a grand spectacle indeed. And the idiom itself, according to NPR again, is believed to have been first associated with uh, Bach, with Johann Sebastian Bach. And Bach was not only a great organist, but he was also apparently a great organ tester. And whenever he tried out a new organ, his practice was to start off by playing with all the stops pulled out. That is, with every rank of pipes online at once. And in this way, he said, he could see what kind of lungs the instrument had. Anyway, according, appropriately enough, to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, uh, the first recorded use in English of the phrase in a figurative sense was in 1865 by Matthew Arnold uh, in his Essays and Criticism, when he wrote that you're trying to do something pretty popular indeed if you're trying to pull out a few more stops in that powerful but somewhat narrow-toned organ, the modern Englishman. And that's pretty funny, I think, you know, coming from a guy whose roots come from England more than anywhere else. And, and Arnold was an English poet, so I suppose he can get away with poking fun at Englishmen. Uh, just like Josh Ritter as a singer-songwriter can get away with taking a musical it idiom like pulling out all the stops and shortening it for rhythm's sake to pulling all the stops. Or just pulling the stops. <laughs> Talking about my mom playing the organ and spooky pipe organs in church attics uh, seems like a natural segue to another idiom, bats in the belfry. And my mom used this phrase not long ago during a phone conversation, and because I had this podcast on my mind, I wrote it down as an idiom I'd like to take a closer look at. And I should have written down the context as well, because I can't remember it. I know she was talking about somebody being a bit batty, though. Uh, a belfry, as we all know, and as the word suggests, is the part of a church dedicated to having some bells. And it's usually high up in a church tower. And for some reason, the phrase makes me think of an English Gothic-type church with some impossibly high ceilings with rib vaulting and a high, steep tower framed by pointed arches, bats flitting about, silhouetted by the moon, some bells ringing in the wind, etc. Uh, anyway, the phrase obviously means being a bit cuckoo, or strange, or eccentric, or maybe even perhaps a lunatic whose weirdness only comes out with the moon. And I can see it. Bats do move kind of erratically, and the head is kind of like the belfry of the body. So having creepy kind of stuff flit about erratically upstairs seems to fit the meaning pretty well. And although it does seem English for some reason, the phrase actually turns out to be American in origin. And it appeared around 1900 or so, and by 1920 was gaining a lot of popularity. Uh, 
Ambrose Bierce, that great American writer of war stories, satire and horror stories. Uh, he had a notable usage in a 1907 piece for Cosmopolitan magazine when he described a man's use of language as follows. He was especially charmed with the phrase bats in the belfry and would indubitably substitute it for possessed of a devil, the scriptural diagnosis of insanity. Uh, interestingly, one of Ambrose Bierce's masterpieces was called The Devil's Dictionary, and it consists of common words followed by humorous and satirical definitions. It's been described by some of the Kanyashanti as one of the 100 greatest American books and probably the most brilliant work of satire written in America. Quote, uh, I have to say, I'd never even heard of it, but it sounds right up my alley, so I've got the book on order now. And if we look a little bit further back than 1907, thanks to Google's engram, I found a usage from 1895, uh, the earliest I could find, in a book called Private Instructions in the Science and Art of Organic Magnetism. Uh, quite the title. I, I scanned through some of this book, and it's pretty eclectic in terms of talking about magic and magnetic auras and advising one to abstain from meat, alcohol, or drugs of any kind, fermented food, etc. But its main thrust seems to be a how-to guide for developing organic magnetism, which seems to be basically hypnosis. Anyway, the part where Bats in the Belfry comes in is when the author is providing examples of experiments that the would-be hypnotizer can use to induce their subject into a magnetized state, uh, also referred to in the book as artificial dreaming, uh, which is kind of an interesting way of putting that uh, hip hypnotic state. So the, the book uh, says, the few following experiments, however, illustrative of artificial dreaming will enable you to found hundreds upon them. Tell your subjects they are in a belfry pulling bells and make them remark upon the hardness and softness of the handles of the ropes and how difficult they are to pull. And some will perspire and put their bodies in the most extreme contortions as if exerting their utmost physical strength. You may tell them there are bats in the belfry and they should catch them. Each will excitedly describe those they see, some throwing their hats and handkerchiefs up to strike them. And I can't think of a more apt portrait of what a crazy person must look like from the outside uh, than a hypnotized subject who imagines himself to be in a belfry pulling bells, remarking upon how soft the rope handles are, perspiring, contorting their bodies with the effort, and then starting to throw their hat around trying to catch some bats. That's pretty wild stuff. Uh, finally, there's also a theory uh, that seems kind of cockamamie to me that says the phrase uh, actually derives from a Victorian inventor named Batson who patented a safety coffin which came topped with a bell that a corpse could ring if he had the misfortune of being buried alive. Uh, and in time, this device came to be known as the Batson Belfry. Uh, all evidence points to this being just a made-up piece of fiction, though, and it's, it's pretty far out there anyway. But the idea does lead to a quick look at this episode's last idiom, dead ringer. Uh, and this idiom, of course, doesn't refer to a corpse buried in a coffin rigged with the Batson Belfry who's ringing the bell for dear life. And it doesn't refer to somebody who got a little too hypnotized and couldn't stop imagining themselves ringing the bells in a belfry until they died from the exertion. As we know, it means exact duplicate or spot on fake. And its usage appeared about the same time as 
bats in the belfry. Uh, but according to Google Ingram, its popularity didn't take off until the late 60s, early 70s for some reason. Not sure why. Uh, there is a horror movie starring Betty Davis that came out in 1964 called Dead Ringer. And maybe that had something to do with it. Who knows? I haven't seen that movie, but I watched the trailer on YouTube and enjoyed seeing Betty Davis. Uh, she was playing both identical twin sisters who hadn't spoken in 20 years ever since one of them, Margaret, had hoodwinked the man that her sister Edith loved him to marrying her Margaret instead. And now, 20 years later, Edith is back for revenge, uh, killing her sister and stealing her identity, convincing everyone that she's actually Margaret, uh, with more shocking secrets to come, apparently. Uh, the origin of this phrase, dead ringer, uh, appears straightforward enough. Uh, ringer has been around for a long time. It appears to come from the late 19th century horse racing slang for a horse that's presented as a dishonest duplicate. Uh, from the Manitoba Free Press in October 1882, a horse that is taken through the country and trotted under a false name and pedigree is called a ringer. And from an 1899 newspaper article uh, from the Guernsey Times called The Horse Color, uh, we get some further light uh, on this phrase. And this article is talking to somebody deep in the horse racing business who tells us that a ringer, you know, is a good horse made to appear like an old skate so that he can be entered in the slower races. This professional colorer is nothing more nor less than a ringer preparer and he's got the slickest methods you can imagine. He can take a bay mare into his barn and with 24 hour, within 24 hours bring her out as white as snow or jet black, just as you please. And in, this guy in the horse racing business goes on to say that the old method was simply to paint the horse, but you know, obviously once it started to rain, that, that was a problem. Uh, but this new man, or this man has a, a new method that is known only to him and he uses some kind of chemical and that he can give a col any color to any horse. Uh, so that's where ringer comes from. Uh, and then at some point, the dead part just got added to it and, and it stuck, I guess. Uh, there's nothing too special about the use of dead here. Uh, dead meaning precise or exact has long been uh, one of the meanings of dead. Think dead center or dead heat. Uh, there's also dead shot, which means unerring. Uh, so you can have someone who's dead tired on a dead run take a dead shot at the dead center of a dead party and hit a man leaving him dead as dead. And you could throw in a few more different meanings of dead in there if you wanted to stretch it some more. Uh, it's quite a handy word. That's it for episode two of Idiom America. Thanks for listening. I'm doing this for the love of it, so there'll be more episodes to come.